0: Come to church for the fourth week, hoping, just praying to hear the second part of the sermon they heard the first part of three weeks ago. So, it's just, it's one. There's Craig. Yeah. He's the only one. Um, so, um, I wish I could say I was going to do that this morning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. So, let me say just a couple things before I get going here. Um, uh, prayer, praise, and pie was great. I don't know if you've ever been—because it was my first one, so I can come in and be like the observer. Now, not a lot of prayer, but there was a lot of praise and there was a lot of pie. Now I'll just tell you, m- man, there was a lot of pie, okay? I, and I sampled four whole pieces, because sometimes the first taste, it doesn't really tell you the quality of the pie. So I eat the whole piece each time. I think my, my five-year-old Rachel ate four pieces of pie, too. She was up at one a.m. and uh, man, there was it was just a lot of amazing pie. You need to go next if you didn't go, you need to go next year. Even even if you come like late and go, oh, I thought it was at seven, and then just go eat pie. I mean, you need to come. I'm just telling you, you should come to the whole thing. But I'm just saying, okay. And then the other thing is, man. I just know that John and, the, and our, our artists and stuff, that they are really— there's no stool up here today— they're, they are really working to make sure that the 19th and the 24th are going to be great in terms of they're going to feel really Christmassy, but they're also going to be really Christ-centered. They're going to be a great opportunity for you to bring a neighbor or coworker, or whatever. So um, really go after that. I know it's hard to invite people, but, you know, that's—nobody does—nothing happens. Nothing happens if we don't do that, right? Okay, so getting back to Mark. Now, we're in chapter 3. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. Um, we're in chapter 3. Now, th- Now, in chapter 2— I need to get out my clicker and get rolling with this now, don't I? In chapter 2, um, Jesus— Yeah. All oh, right, sorry. Hey, kids, everybody come up here. <laughs> yeah. Hey, sorry about that. <laughs> so yeah, all the kids that are going to the children's sermon, I'm sorry, I totally threw you guys for Luke to die. Did they already go? All right, so you see those doors over there? Somebody, can somebody take these guys in case they're— because this guy with the shark shirt, he looks like he could be a little lost. Yeah, so yeah, Donnie, if you could— See that Donnie over there? Go with him. He's going to take you to the uh, kids' sermon thing if you want to go. Wow, this is awkward. Getting a little awkward. (laughs) So, here it is. Yeah, so, yeah, I was going to pray for you guys, but then that didn't happen. Okay. Wow. So I'm going to come all the way back around and get on the runway again. And, um, okay, so in chapter two, let me see if this works. No, this isn't working. Let me see if it... Oh, oh, oh. Okay, in chapter 2, the way this roll, Mark's gospel rolls is Mark is the fast and furious gospel So he gets in and boom, he just rolls So verse 14 of chapter 1 Je- I mean, verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 Jesus is already the Son of God He goes, oh by the way, this is a book about Jesus the Son of God in case you were wondering. And then, boom, verse 14, he jumps right and he goes, Jesus starts teaching, he said, uh, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel, and off he goes with his ministry, and by the end of chapter 2, he has already claimed to— now, we already know he's the son of God, but, you know, the problem with any title for Jesus is that you can always take it wrong. Have you noticed that? Any title of Jesus, you can take it wrong. So, son of God, how do you take that wrong, Right? That it's literally son, as in the progeny of the father, right? And that's wrong. The son, the second person of Trinity, has existed for eternity past, right? God the Father did not have sex with Mary, right? There's there's ways in which Jesus, the man, is not God's son. So how is he God's son? Well, you've got to use other metaphors to fill that out. The main one that Jesus uses in Mark 2 is this one from Daniel chapter 7, which is the son of man. Because in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is this figure that God Almighty, who is referred to as the Ancient of Days, brings this figure into his presence, who's like a Son of Man, a human being, but he treats him exactly like you would treat God Almighty, and in a way that relating to him this would be totally inappropriate if this Son of Man wasn't himself God Almighty. He has a kingdom that will never pass away. It will never diminish. It will never be destroyed. All nations, all people come. And who do they worship? Do they worship the ancient days? No, they worship the Son of Man figure. Right? And so Jesus says twice in chapter 2, I'm the Son of Man. I'm this guy. That's what Son of God means. It means I'm the Son of Man. I'm this figure from Daniel 7. And in chapter 2, he basically claims to be the— the guy who can forgive sins on the part of on behalf of God, which of course only God can do. The guy who can spiritually redeem the spirit the, the wickedest among us, which of course only God can do, the one who is himself the bridegroom to the whole cosmos as his bride, including us, which of course only God can be, right? And sort of—and on it goes, right? And he's the king—he is the king of the Sabbath, which you go, oh, so he's king of Sunday. Well, that's not quite as impressive as the other ones, except for in the Jewish mind, the Sabbath represented all of creation, all of redemption, and the very sign that we're the people of God. And he said, I'm king over all of that, right? So he's made a few big claims, you could say, in chapter 2. So by the time you get to chapter 3, chapter 3 is all reactions. It's all how people respond to jesus um, Okay, I get to twist it. That's cool. I already covered that. Okay. So, in the first—my first first talk on this, I covered the first three, which is that um, the Pharisees and the Herodians saw Jesus as a threat that had to be eliminated— where he was taking this was all going in a bad direction from them, and to them Jesus was a threat that had to be destroyed. Now if you want to hear more about that, I'd suggest go back into that sermon so I don't get bogged down here. The second was um, there were these crowds that came from seven different regions from everywhere and just came all over Jesus, and he actually had to get a boat. He told his disciples, get a boat so that when they start to crush us, we can move out into deeper water. I mean, like, these people are nuts, and they saw Jesus as essentially a product to be consumed. They weren't interested in Jesus himself. They were interested in what Jesus had to offer, in that. So—that's clear from the fact that they weren't even concerned enough about Jesus' well-being that he had to have a naval escape plan, okay? Then the third is Jesus' calling of the disciples, right? He goes up on the mountain. He calls to himself the twelve he wants. He chooses us first. Then we have the opportunity to respond, right? And these people recognize Jesus is worth following. Now, they don't even really know who he is yet. They don't really get it yet. It becomes clear later on in the gospel. But they've heard enough to know that they're going to bet the full weight of their trust on Jesus, Right? That's the only good of the five responses. And today we're gonna cover reactions four and five, and that is that Jesus is a poor fellow that needs intervention, and five, that Jesus is a fraud that needs to be exposed. So let's read that passage. Verses twenty to thirty five. It says Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Then his family heard about this. When his family heard about this they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub by the prince of demons he is driving out demons so so Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end is come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions until he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies, blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister And mother. Okay, now a lot of people are going to want me to preach a whole sermon on the unforgivable sin, right? Oh, there's a sin that can't be for. That's very exciting. Okay, well, here. Okay, newsflash: I'm not gonna. Okay, Um, so yeah, so maybe some other. (laughs) I guess it's in Matthew. So. There it is. There's a, if, you, if you have that question, email me, and I'll send you a, a passage from F.F. F. Bruce's book on it, which is only a paragraph, so. So let's talk about the fourth reaction, which is— apparently I have to aim this. Um, Jesus is a poor fellow that needs intervention. Right? That's his, thats a, essentially the family response, right? They get to this point where poor Jesus, he just—he's out of his gourd. Poor little feller. And he needs intervention. Now, um, in our culture, intervention has a stigma of embarrassment. It's something— um, there's—you know, if you have to be—there interv- has to be an intervention in relationship to you, there's something really wrong with you. You know, if you Google—do a Google image search on intervention, you, may, you basically get pictures of Lindsay Lohan, Charlie Sheen, Michael Jackson, and zombies. And zombies, they really need intervention, those guys. I mean, it's bad. So, um, you know, one of the—and one of the places where intervention is really needed are people who go shopping on what's called Black Friday, Right? I mean, I don't, know if you, I don't know if you know why Black Friday is actually called Black Friday. Um, there's a, a number of false reasons why, that people give. The, the reason apparently is that there are so many people so close together, you can actually get the plague. That's the reason. It's Black—get it Black Friday. So it's, cr- it's insane. So, in fact, this is a scene—I think I'm running out of batteries. This is a scene from two days ago, Lexi and I shopping— on, um on black friday so that's just for you um yeah so um do you like the hair i had to add that from the internet picture so um so in in verse twenty twenty one it says this then jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat that's crowded right when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for he, they said he is out of his mind. Now, okay, we need to break this down a little bit. Let's see if I have that verse here. Okay. Um, now, one of the things you need to know about verse 21 is it says, it says, when his family heard about this. Now, in Mark, it actually doesn't say family. It actually says those of him, which is, of course, ambiguous. What does that mean? Who on earth knows? And the reason why it usually gets translated family there is because it fits with verses 30 to 35 below, right? And it doesn't seem as though these people are present. It seems like they hear about it because it says, literally, when his family or those of him heard about this, right? Like, it's rumor. They didn't see it. They heard about it. And so, you know, you can can imagine what Jesus' family in Nazareth was hearing, about the crowds and about the crowd control and about Jesus not being able to eat and about people deciding they want to get him killed. And remember, in, in chapter one of Mark's gospel, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, has already been in prison. So it's, it's fair, its decently likely that he's already been beheaded by this point. So, so crazy Uncle John, remember? I mean, you can imagine how the family in Nazareth is, is talking at the gossipy dinner table. Crazy Uncle John has already gotten himself killed down in Jerusalem, Right? And now, and now, Jesus, it's, I mean, he's got people who already want to kill him. There's all these crowds. There's all this controversy. There's, uh, the local authorities don't approve of what he's doing, either politically or religiously. This is all not going very well. And so they figure, you know, we need to go down and we need to get him. Or he's going to end up like, you know, crazy Uncle John the Baptist. Beheaded or something, or worse. I don't know how you get worse, but I'm sure there is. And so, um... They go down there, and the language that's used is that their plan is not to convince Jesus to come to Nazareth. It's their plan to take him. The, the, the language that's used is to forcibly remove Jesus, right? It says they go down to take charge of him. That's straight jacket language, in case you're wondering. And then it says, for they said he's out of his mind. He's—and he's, that's the, the people have argued about whether that's the right translation because the word can mean sort of amazed or—that's the right translation. You don't go and put somebody in a straitjacket unless you think they're nuts. That's what the word means. They think that Jesus has been overwhelmed by this experience so much that he's not psychologically capable to figure out that human beings need to eat to live, essentially. <clears throat> and so, whether it's from reports or reality, they come down here. Now, the reason why this is significant is— there are a lot of people who have essentially blown off Jesus because of silly reports that are totally inaccurate that they have just heard from sources they thought were reliable. Okay, you remember how this is? This is five or six years ago. Remember that book that came out, um, the the Da Vinci Code. Remember that? And and people were like, "Oh yeah, phew, totally disproves Christianity," right? And, and you. And people really—and I remember six years ago, people really thought that was kind of a reasonable reaction to that novel, right? Nothing in its true, Nothing, virtually. Um, But that's kind of how gossip works. It's sort of how stupidity um, virally moves. And so you get people who end up in positions where they get to talk, but almost every position where people get to talk— it's somehow for salacious reasons. I mean, there's only a couple positions within human culture where people come to listen to somebody talk for non-entertainment reasons, right? This is one of the only ones. The the church gathering to hear the word preached is one of the only gatherings in our culture that is supposed to be designed that we come and listen to something reasonably and spiritually said that we don't come to see what salacious thing might be uttered. Which is not true of most of our news organizations or anything like that anymore, at least. Certainly not in my lifetime. And so... You get folks who've watched an ABC special on the Bible or they've read the Da Vinci Code or they've heard some professor make an offhanded comment outside of his field and they really think that these are credible attacks on the actual personality of Jesus and Jesus appears to be a poor little primitive fellow that needs our help and reinterpretation and reorganization and re-understanding. And the only way Jesus can possibly be saved, therefore, is to ignore most of what he said, to reframe him in relationship to some approved of political or social cause, and see him as an early forerunner of understanding some social enlightenment that we've experienced in the last 200 years. That's essentially how Jesus is attempted to be saved by so many people. Right? But that, I mean, that's, just not tr- that's just not only true of folks like that It's also true of people like us For example I remember um, doing preaching planning at Lynnhaven And Doug and I working up an idea And going, now that'll preach Right? Which, in one sense That makes sense, right? I mean, that'll be interesting But in another sense, it's Okay, that, people will stand to hear that That's what it can also mean, you see? That's dangerous because you can say, well, I'm still preaching the Bible. Yeah, but you're only preaching the parts that you think people will stand to hear and ways you think they will stand to hear. That's, you're, you're, really, you're really editing Jesus. You really think Jesus needs intervention. You really think he needs to be managed to be taken seriously, don't you? And in that sense, see, this is kind of interesting. In that sense, this whole passage actually goes together. Because the people— who are part of his family and followers who come to do this intervention, essentially believe the same things that the teachers of the law think when they slander him as demon-possessed. They they treat it very differently. One person goes, oh, we need to take him back to the house. The other people say, he's possessed by (laughs) Satan. But both reactions come from a very similar understanding about Jesus. The poor fellow is out of his mind. He's disconnected from reality. One, one group will interpret it, oh, it's all, this, all this excitement's just been too much for him. The other people say, yeah, well, he's kind of possessed by an evil spirit. But they're both looking at the same phenomenon and not seeing Jesus is up to it. And one of the gut checks I think we've got to make is, in the 21st century, we really need to ask ourselves, do we really think that Jesus is actually out of his league in the 21st century? Deep down, do we really think that Jesus is too primitive too badly in need of updating, that Jesus really needs a handler, that we, that w- we dare not let people actually read our Bible because we're just afraid that Jesus is going to go off teleprompter too often. Or do we actually really think that it's us that are nuts, that we're the ones that um, are kind of out of our minds, we can't see what's really there, and what we desperately need is for Jesus to tell us what's really there. And and I really believe that this is not something we get past just because we get converted. Um, There are are issues for almost all of us that we have made some kind of uncomfortable peace treaty with because we believe the rest. Do you know what I'm talking about? So we're Christians. We believe most of the Bible, but there are these doctrines, there are these beliefs that we— we don't like—it we, ups- really actually upset us, but we recognize they're sort of part of the whole deal, and we kind of accept them, and they're sort of over here. But man, we don't like to mention them. We'll clean them up if we can. We find ways to think about them that aren't particularly biblical, but they're—they work for now. And surely Jesus will clear this all up when we go to heaven. And by cleared up, what we mean is all of our assumptions about it are right. He'll just sort of explain some things that didn't fully come to light. And, and listen, I believe that this is a really strong phenomenon for us. I mean, for myself, um, I mean, I sat down and I, last night and I said, God, what are these for me? Because I know I have these. There the are things that I either think that you need to be handled on or I think that you're insane about. Um, one of them for me is is god 's hiddenness. Um, I, I have a firm belief that most people 's objections to Christian faith come down to the hiddenness of god and here 's why I think that because most people think that the problem of suffering is the biggest problem but i 've asked a number of people now over the course of my ministry who had struggled with the hiddenness of God. I said, "Listen, <clears throat> try to imagine yourself in a hospital bed you 've just been told you have cancer." And it's very likely that you're going to die in the next year, painfully. And you don't understand how God could allow this to happen in your life, and you're struggling with the problem of suffering. I said, now, now really, really try to imagine this. Imagine that evening, when nobody's in your room, the risen Christ walks in and sits down next to you and takes your hand. He's as real as real could possibly be. And he looks you in the face and he says, listen— I know that there's a lot of this that you don't understand. And I know that you're terrified to go through this pain and I know that you do this is not how you pictured your life turning out and I know I know everything that you're feeling. Listen, I know every shred of how you're feeling. And I want you to know I'm not going to explain to you why this is happening to you right now. I've just come to tell you that all of this is under my control and all of this Will come for an ultimate loving purpose for you and for many, and and then I, and then I ask the person I say, Would you still struggle the same way with that suffering, or would if the risen Christ really sat down and had that conversation, would you be okay? And I think most people that really enter into imagining it and really. Take in the idea that the risen Christ is really there. I think almost all the ones I've asked, have, have, if they've really entered it, go, yeah, I'd be okay. I mean, I wouldn't like it, but that would change it for me. And what that means is our problem really isn't with the problem of suffering. Our problem is with the hiddenness of God. It's that God isn't—he's not answering for this. He just lets all this happen, and he doesn't answer for it. Then all through the Bible, he has the audacity to tell us he's constantly with us, and he won't leave us as orphans, and he's all around, and he's right there, and he loves us, and he cares about us, he's going to help us. And yet, where, where the heck is he, right? I mean, it, it's, it's scary, and, and we can go on. Listen, listen, I I believe I would put my life down, but there is a part of me that I feel like I've got to clean up this whole doctrine of the hiddenness of God. I've got to either sentimentalize God's presence enough so that I can argue that, no, he's really there, you're just not feeling it, or I need to minimize this, I need to do something with something to clean this up, or I need to say that God's just nuts to be able to think that he can tell us he's this present while apparently being this far away with all the junk that's going on. And I don't, see, I don't think it's like the university professors Who ridicule Christianity Who struggle with this I think it's every human being I think it's us, the church And I think if we want to get something of spiritual worth Out of this passage We need to not go, oh, you know, there's people who read the Da Vinci Code And they don't believe No, we need to go, where do I want to put Jesus In a straitjacket And say, buddy, you just don't get it You just don't get it And I feel similarly about the doctrine of divorce I mean, I've read the passages Jesus is nuts He's nuts To think people are going to stay married to each other I mean, has he observed his own idea of gender yet? I mean, G.K. Chesterton said it best when he said And G.K. Chesterton was a great champion of marriage He said, it's important that people get married while they're in love And still crazy Because otherwise, the woman will wake up and realize that she's marrying an unfeeling barbarian And the man will realize that he's marrying somebody sensitive to the point of being insane It's just, marry them off while they're in love with each other Because you could hardly come up with two creatures more ill-adapted to each other's existence Right? And yet Jesus goes, yep, you can't break it Nope, nope, for virtually nothing they, if they leave you, what can you do? And, you know, if they start acting like they're the spouse of everybody around, then what can you do? I mean, that's really—but you, you can't break it. I mean, how impractical is that? But that—listen, Jesus does just—you know, I mean, and I think it's Matthew 18 or 19 where Jesus lays this out, and you know what all the apostles say? It's just, better not, better not get married then. <laughs> it's going to be like that, that's what they say. I mean, these are the spiritual guys, right? The, spir- the disciples say, well, man, if that's the play on marriage, buddy, I'm not getting hitched. That's crazy. It's, be- it's better not to be married. Right? That's the, the church people said, the, the ministers said that. The, the holy apostles response. I mean, and I think there's a number of these things that we, and what we have to do is go, we have to admit that our impulse is to clean up, manage, and tell Jesus somehow this has to get cleaned up or something. Or listen, I'll come up with some way to talk about this that that isn't as offensive, and then in heaven you can explain it. But right now, we'll do something pretty close to what you want, but kind of different. Do you see what I'm saying? It, we do this, and for you, it, it may not be those issues. Your issues may be totally different. Your issues might be Jesus teaching on sexuality or homosexuality, his teaching on human life, his teaching on how families to interact and raise children, how, uh, how we should— One of them, Here's one of them for me. That Jesus has the audacity to tell me that he's created all these things in creation for my pleasure— and then, tell, and then tell me that the plan of redemption is for me to sacrifice and forego them to live sacrificially for his purposes. And that has nothing to do with sin. It's not like I want to go run off with some woman or something and he says that. No, I mean, the good thing, all the pleasures that are food and hunting trips and going to shopping and all these things that we all love to do, not all of us like to go on hunting trips. But, I mean, there's all these things that you want. That are, there's nothing sinful about them at all, right? It says in screw Tape Letters, um, the demon's screw tape says, says, the problem is there's things for the humans to do all day long without offending God in the least. You know, walking and washing and eating and laughing and making love. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's f- so frustrating because the humans can do so many pleasurable things and there's nothing wrong with them. And we have to contort everything and twist everything to make it evil, right? But yet Jesus comes and he goes, all this creation, it's all for your pleasure. Now, forego most of it to be part of redemption and my work in the world to save lives and to alleviate misery and to love people for an eternal kingdom. And I'm like, What? What? You should have just made the world a lot more boring god i mean jesus if 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 food was awful and if sex wasn't any fun and if there wasn't any money and then I think I could get into this I could get into this whole sacrifice for the kingdom and forego pleasures and get in the game and but you went and created all this fun It's scandalizing, but Jesus is just like, yep. It's really funny how unmoved he is, which we'll get to next week. Um, <laughs> so let's move on to fraud. Um, calling people a fraud is pretty common, right? I mean, the, the idea here is this, the, the teacher of law come and they're like, he's just a huckster. He's just a huckster is all he is. And the reason he's got power, like, obviously he has power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously he's healing people and casting out demons. But the only reason he can do that is because he's using demonic power to do it. Right, and th- this is something I think it's important for us because one of the things our culture is giving itself over to, at a very rapid pace, is the willingness to slander people and to just make fun of them and try to humiliate them instead of engage in principled discourse. And we all do this on all on all sides of the sort of political spectrum. So here's one from one. I'm going to equal opportunity offend. I promise. So so here's the. Like, I mean, that's not a principled disagreement with Al Gore, is it? That's an attempt to humiliate and make him look like a fraud, right? And so here's—here's the—I'll offend the other people now. So here's Glenn Beck, the conservative radio guy, right? And it's just—there's no principled—there's no principled argument here. It's just, let's just write fraud uncreatively across his forehead, right? Or one of the ones is—I don't know if you know this guy. This is Bear Grylls from Man vs. Wild, okay? A couple of years ago— Okay, so now, you need to understand that this guy, like, he basically goes out in the most extreme weather and survival conditions, and he, and he teaches, like, survival tips, okay? And it's really disgusting and hilarious, okay? And I, I'm going to tell you right now, I am partial to Bear Grylls, because I know he's a Christian. Um, I know he got, be, got, became a Christian during, in the Alpha Course in London, and I like him, and so obviously I'm going to defend him. But um, in 2007, this gig came out that he was a fraud, because on some of his shoots, he would spend the night at hotels, and they, and some of the things that they would shoot would be like within sight of the road, and you know they'd be shooting him, and they'd be acting kind of like it's out in the middle of nowhere, and there's people are like he's a fraud, he doesn't do anything, he just he goes he goes out and pretends to do stuff, and then he sleeps in, and I, and and a uh, part of me was a little disappointed. But see, part of it is there's an American show where the guy really does that. He, like, he, he doesn't even have a camera crew. He sets up his own camera. He's totally by himself. And people sort of assume because they watch that show that that's how Bear's show works. And Bear's show doesn't work that way. He just gets in extreme situations and shows you what you would do in them to survive, right? So, um, so the people were like, he stays in hotels, he's fraud. So I thought it was funny because there's all these comments on this. And one person says, does it really matter if he stayed in a hotel? He still eats live snakes, frogs, etc. And somehow, I don't think that elephant dung was chocolate cake. Because there's one episode where he's showing you how to get how to get water in this desert situation. They're in this savanna where there's no water, and so he shows how you can actually wring out elephant dung and get water out of it and drink it and it, and survive, right? And she's like, basically, she's saying, "Okay, let's get a little perspective here. Okay, maybe bear grills, um, maybe he stayed in a hotel from time to time. But listen." Eating snakes isn't fake. I mean, those are real snakes. He eats frogs. It's real. When he ate the flesh of a dead camel, he was really eating the flesh of a dead camel. When he slept inside a camel, maybe he didn't sleep overnight, but he cut its guts open with a rock, pulled all its entrails out, got inside of it to show us what it would be like if we were to sleep in it all night, even though the camel had been dead three days. Right? And then, okay, because there's one guy who from Texas who's like, he's like, yeah, bear girls climbed Mount Everest, but, you know, some 15 year old girl did too. And I'm just like, dude, you from Texas, have you climbed Mount Everest? That's what I want to know. Have you? And then, it's like you don't even pay attention to him freezing himself to death. Like, this is in the Alps, okay? He goes to the Alps in the middle of the winter. It's like 15 below. He gets in the water just to show you what you would do. For like two minutes Like you can watch it on YouTube he, he gets in the water And is narrating what you would do Holding onto the side of the ice In the water I mean I don't even like it when my shower is cold <laughs> Right? There's another one where he's in Siberia It's 35 below he, They cut two holes in Because he's going to swim underwater 35 below in Siberia He has to break through the ice that's already reforming just to get in the water He ties a rope around himself So they can pull him out if he dies He swims, when he gets inside He has to break the ice with his elbow So he can climb out and get out Right? That's not fake <laughs> He really did that I don't care if he stayed in the hotel I don't care He's amazing, right? But for some people they don't like him They don't want some other dude to be a stud They're the stud I'm the man So so what if he's special forces? So what if he can get water when it's 35 below And swim underwater and break the ice And climb out when people in dry suits are getting hypothermia A 15 year old girl can climb out Everest Right? When I mean, we just get We get emotionally threatened We get ideologically threatened We get politically threatened by people and Instead of engaging in intellectual principled interaction We just slander him. Right? Okay, so I need to spend a couple minutes, because I'm way behind here, on what, all, what does all this mean? Now, he, he, One of the things that people don't often pick up is the whole issue with the parents is an enormous turning point in Mark's gospel. An enormous turning point. Because we just read over it because Jesus is totally unfazed by it, right? He goes, who are my family? We see this sort of like sandal Jesus, you know, like with his hair blowing. Who are my family? Those who do the will of God. Right? But that's not, that's not the story here, right? Basically what happens is, it tells us that Jesus' family is coming to forcibly take him. Right? They have heard, and they're coming. Okay? Then, Jesus takes the biggest beating he's ever taken in the press all day. Right? Because, where do the lawyers come from? They come down from… Jerusalem, okay? These are the first people who come from Jerusalem. These are the teachers of law. These are the people who are in charge, okay? These are the national leaders of the whole nation of Israel. They are coming to pronounce their judgment on Jesus, and their pronouncement is what? He's possessed by demons, okay? So, and then his family arrives. So he's sitting in a house. His followers are gathered around him. His family has just arrived to forcibly take him. the, the the people who control the country have just said he's demon-possessed publicly. But they didn't say it to him. He, they said it to everybody. Then he had to go and confront them, right? So there's this rumor about that the, the important intellectual people who run the whole country from Jerusalem have just said Jesus is a, is a fraud. And now they're, they're sitting around each other and word comes in, Jesus' family just arrived. And they're asking for him. Do you see the drama? The drama here is, it's over. Now, you know there's more pages to Mark's gospel, so you have this little hint that something's gonna, not going to go. But for, imagine being one of the disciples. It's over. They're going to take Jesus back to Trailer Parkville in Nazareth, middle of nowhere, 250 people in town that wouldn't sheep. And this all ends right now. You can't say no to your family, particularly if they come in with enough numbers to drag you away, right? And there's no future— when the Sadducees or the teachers of the law have pronounced judgment upon your ministry, it, this is over. And Jesus just goes, "Yeah, yeah." And he looks around at everybody, dramatic look. He goes, "Listen. You know who my family is? Really? My family is those who do the will of God. Those are my brothers and my sisters. And my mother and <clears throat> one of the things that we need to take from this is that you, you have to ultimately ask yourself what Jesus is doing here and if you look at this whole passage together, what you 're going to see is is that jesus isn 't just saying this is how you can be saved he 's creating a new people for god that 's what he 's doing, and he 's inviting you to be part of the new people of God. And the two definitions he's going to use here is the, the chosen people, the people of Israel, right? And the family. Those are the two metaphors he's going to use. And he's going to, he's going to bank everything on those two. Think about it. How many disciples does he pick? Remember? Twelve. Why does he pick twelve? Is it just a manageable number? No. He picks twelve because there are twelve tribes of Israel. When he selects the apostles, he is choosing new Israel, Right? And then, do the leaders of Israel Accept him? No, they pronounce Judgment upon him, right? So the the Teachers of the law are The rejection of old Israel He has just selected new Israel What's he doing? He's creating a new Nation. He's creating a new kingdom He's creating a new people of God, right? And then And then what happens in terms of his family? He's brought these followers around him, it says, To be with him. There's all these people who are actually with him in the house, who are his followers, who are there to hear his teaching, and then his family comes who've rejected him, right? And then what does he say? Do you know who my family really is? In a deeper way, even than my blood, are those who do the will of God, who actually repent and believe and begin to live like it, who lean really the trust of their whole life into what God has called them to be. That's my real family. And what you need to see in the midst of all that turmoil is— sorry, I had such great plans for this sermon. Um, those are all about being persecuted. Is, here's what you need to realize about this. With all the turmoil that's happening in this passage, there is never going to be a Bambi moment for you to accept Jesus. There's, there's never going to be this moment where everything is nice and peaceful and nobody's going to disapprove of you and nobody's going to be angry at you and everything's going to make sense and all the stars are going to align and, there, and you're going to, it's going to be like you're in a little field with Thumper and um, you know everything's perfect and everything's nice and now you can accept Jesus. Now for those of you who need to have a real personal face on things to really get it, I made that for you. Um, <laughs> so that. There is a very—even even when Jesus is saying, listen, you, you are part of my—you fa- you will be part of my family. You will be my new people. It's in the midst of an enormous amount of turmoil. And what I want to tell you is, is that you, you cannot afford to wait— to follow and trust Christ, either in a particular issue in your Christian life or to follow him for the first time to become a Christian, to get converted, to be saved, to become part of the new people he's creating until all the stars align. There's never going to be a Bambi moment. You will have to become part of the people. You will have to become part of his family in the only kind of moment there is. The crazy, messed up, loud, noisy, frustrated, hopeful Real life that actually exists in which you actually are. And I just want to ask you you're going to give yourself to one of these five reactions. Would you give yourself to the middle one? The one where the disciples realized that Jesus was worth following. So that they'd turn their back on seeing Jesus as one that's going to take their power, one that was just a consumable to be eaten or whether it was that he was crazy, we had to go help him, or that he was the sort of person we couldn't stand, so we had to slander. Would you consider that the right response really is the response of the disciples? I don't understand this. I don't even see how this all works right, but he is worth believing in and following it and being with and being sent out by. I want to be part of the new people. I want to be part of this family, because all you have to do is ask him. After we pray, there'll be people up here to pray with you if you want to pray. I'll be out in the Welcome Center. I'd love to meet you if you're new. Why don't you stand and we'll pray and receive the benediction. Father, we pray that um, as we move past this passage that you would make us a people who recognize that part of being a Christian is just going to be receiving these reactions ourselves and realizing that we are going to continually have these responses in our hearts to Jesus. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to be okay with that. I pray, Father, for anybody here who is still struggling with whether or not you're worth following or whether you're real or whether that you would work in their hearts, that you would give them enough peace and hope and courage to leap forward and to believe you like the disciples did. You've already chosen them to come to you and invited them to be part of your family. I pray that they'd respond. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious in you and give you peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for coming and go in peace.